So let's move on to uh, what scholars call the church fathers and the developments in Satan's story that take place within the context of these Christian authors from the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century and on. And I'm going to highlight for you just a few examples of how Satan's story is developing in relation to what the church fathers are concerned about. There's two main things that have already introduced this twofold way of approaching things. We already introduced that back with early Christian literature that you see uh, the use of Satan's story rhetorically and in discourses when it's one Christian attacking another Christian or one Judean attacking another Judean and differences of opinion over it and using Satan language to characterize the other people. We've seen that. So that's sort of internal use of Satan language in the Satan story in internal battles. We've also seen with John's Apocalypse and some other literature that the Satan language and the story of Satan gets impacted by how a Christian author is talking about the Roman Empire, about outsiders, about people outside of the Christian community. And so that internal and external context and the impact of the internal and the external on the story of Satan will be good to keep in mind, I think, as we continue. Uh, so today we're going to be seeing both the impact of external relations on the story of Satan and the impact of internal relations on the story of Satan. In a way, when I talk about internal, we're dealing with what anachronistically could be called heresy versus orthodoxy. The battles between heresy and orthodoxy. That's an anachronistic way of putting it. What it really is, is battles between different types of Christianity. And that Satan language and the story of Satan gets impacted by those internal battles. But first, let's turn to the external factors and see how Satan language and the story of Satan gets impacted by how a Christian author relates to outsiders. There are times, though, that nonetheless, where outsiders look negatively upon the followers of Jesus, even if they don't understand them, even if they think they're just an obscure Judean group. Nonetheless, the relationship between some Greeks and Romans and society at large and these Jesus followers is in tension at times. Not all the time but at times, to the point where there are occasions when social harassment might take place, where you might lose your job because one of your fellow workers doesn't like that you belong to this group of Jesus followers, this obscure minority cultural group. Many of them wouldn't even know who they are, but if they knew about them, they might think this is an obscure minority cultural group. That sometimes leads to dislike, sometimes leads to abuse, once in a while leads to martyrdom. So the point is, the relationship between Christian groups, Jesus followers, and outsiders is sometimes intention, and sometimes attention even goes to the point of death or violence of some sort. So it's negative relations that exist there, but I wouldn't over-exaggerate those. But they're important to know for what we're talking about here. Because there are a number of Christian intellectuals who devote their attention to trying to defend Christianity within the broader Greco-Roman world and trying to show that Christianity is not odd, or maybe odd, but that it's not bad, and trying to defend Christianity as legitimate and as something that's not anti-Roman, and it actually should be accepted. Scholars call these intellectuals who try and defend Christianity apologists. Apologia is where we get our word for apology, but it's not saying sorry. It's the language of defense in a court case, is apologia. 
putting forward an intellectual defense of Christianity as a legitimate thing. And so scholars call these intellectuals apologists. They're defending Christianity against outside attacks because some non-Christian intellectuals know about this movement and think it's stupid and think it's dangerous even sometimes. And they're attacking sometimes and writing about how terrible the Christians are. Not many intellectuals know about the Christians, but the ones that do sometimes do that. And so these apologists are trying to uh, deal with that sort of relationship with the outside world. So in the process, some issues of Satan come to the fore in how these authors are dealing with things. Remember that already we've seen John's apocalypse demonizing the Roman Empire as a whole. Demonizing just about every outsider you can imagine. These apologists have to take a more nuanced approach to it because they're trying to defend Christianity to the outside world. So Justin Martyr is an early example of these intellectual Christians. He was originally a philosopher who was educated in different philosophies, ultimately converted to Christianity and understood his conversion to Christianity not as a conversion but as the adoption of the true philosophy. He's an upper-class sort of guy who likes to express it in terms of philosophy. In his apology, he defends Christianity against some of the persecutions that Christians are sometimes facing and the general negativity that sometimes shows itself in the way that outsiders are viewing Christians. And so in his apology, though, he raises some issues to do with the Greek and Roman gods that actually ends up identifying Greek and Roman gods with demons. This becomes the standard from then on. Justin uh, may not be the guy who invented it. From his time on, that virtually every Christian uh, intellectual author who talks about and criticizes the Greek gods characterizes them as demons. Now, we already had before this, though, back in the mid-first century, an example of this, but not a developed example where someone's expressing it clearly. The Judean Paul, who believed Jesus was the Judean Messiah, who wrote those letters that we read a little bit of, some people at Corinth who are following Jesus are eating food that had been previously sacrificed to the Greek and Roman gods. In the process of dealing with this issue of can we as followers of Jesus eat food that was previously sacrificed to the Greek and Roman gods, that's the issue, but in the process of dealing with that, he says a sort of nuanced approach to some degree where he says, if you encounter this meat by buying it in the market and don't even know it's sacrificed to the gods, eat, feel free to eat it. But don't be there in the temple eating at a table of demons. And he's implying that the gods that the Greeks worship are in fact demons. This is the idea that gets developed by Justin and becomes standard in subsequent rhetoric in the relationship between Christians and outsiders, in this external relationship. And so Satan and demons, their history, their story, ends up being impacted by their use within this context to condemn the Greek and Roman gods. Let's look at Justin Martyr as an example of that. Let me read you a passage from his apology, from his defense of Christianity. Remember that Greeks and Romans are criticizing Christians for being atheists. They don't worship the Greek and Roman gods. He defends Christianity against the accusation of atheism and then brings up this whole idea of the Greek and Roman gods being demons. He's talking about how 
the Christians are being punished as atheists, as if they don't honor the gods, and yet he sees Greeks and Romans not properly honoring their own gods. Why then should this be? In our case, who pledge ourselves to do no wickedness, he's talking about Christians, defending them, nor to hold these atheistic opinions, you do not examine the charges made against us. But yielding to unreasoning passion and to the instigation of evil demons, you punish us without consideration or judgment. For the truth shall be spoken. Since of old, these evil demons, affecting apparitions of themselves, both defiled women and corrupted boys. He knows of the fallen angels story of Semyaz tradition one. And showed such fearful sights to men that those who did not use their reason in judging of the actions that were done were struck with terror. And being carried away by fear and not knowing that these were demons, they called them gods and gave to each the name which each of the demons chose for himself. And when Socrates endeavored by true reason examination, he's saying Socrates was on the right here, uh, to bring these things to light and deliver men from the demons, then the demons themselves, by means of men who rejoiced in iniquity, compassed his death. Remember that Socrates was killed as an atheist way back, quite a few centuries earlier. And now Christians are being accused of atheism, so that's the context in which he comes up. And in our case, they display a similar activity. For not only among the Greeks did reason prevail to condemn these things through Socrates, but also among the barbarians were they condemned by reason himself, personified, who took shape and became man and was called Jesus Christ. Justin Martyr has this philosophical notion of Jesus as reason personified. He was trained in Stoic philosophy. And in obedience to him, we not only deny that they who did such things as these are gods, but assert that they are wicked and impious demons, whose actions will not bear comparison with those even of men desirous of virtue. So here we have a more full statement of this idea of the Greek gods as demons. Not just a passing reference, but philosophizing about that notion and developing that notion in a full way. Uh, in response to the charge of being atheists. He's turning the atheistic accusation and saying, well, if you're going to be calling us atheists, let me explain how you, in fact, are the atheists. You're not worshipping gods, you're atheists. You're worshipping demons. So the origins of worshipping the Greek and Roman gods from this perspective are demons tricking humans into believing they're gods. He develops this further in connection with mythology. And he begins this section here, it's further on in the same apology, where he's trying to explain the origins of Greek and Roman mythology to show that it's inferior. It's going to turn out that the demons introduced the stories that Greeks and Romans tell about their gods, right? But those who hand down the myths which the poets have made, people like Homer, adduce no proof to the youths who learn them. And we proceed to demonstrate that they have been uttered by the influence of the wicked demons to deceive and lead astray the human race. For having heard it proclaimed through the prophets that the Messiah, Christ, was to come and that the ungodly men who were to be punished by fire, they put forward many so-called sons of Jupiter under the impression that they would be able to produce in men the idea that the things which were said with regard to Christ were mere marvelous tales like the things which were said by the poets. And these things were said both among the Greeks and among all nations 
where they, the demons, heard the prophets foretelling that Christ would specially be believed in. But that in hearing what was said by the prophets, they did not accurately understand it, but imitated what was said of our Christ. Like men who are in error, we will make plain. So what the argument here is, the same demons who fooled humanity into believing they were gods are the demons who make up stories that turn out to sound a lot like the story of Jesus. What Justin is reacting to here is Greek and Roman intellectuals criticizing Christianity as derivative. The counter is, actually it might seem like it's derivative, but it's actually that the demons knew about what we would teach and that Jesus would come and what would be taught, imitated it and made up their myths and taught them to the Greeks. Namely, Greek myths of Homer and Hesiod and everyone. And it gives several examples of myths in Greek mythology that actually derive, according to Justin, from the demons knowing about what Jesus would do. So there's a clear example where demons and the language of Satan come into the picture when a Christian is dealing with outsiders, external relations with outsiders. Let me turn to another example of defense. We do not possess a full-out book that attacked Christianity. It was written by an author in the second century, late second century, probably around 160 or 170 CE, named Celsus. Celsus wrote an entire book saying how stupid Christianity was. About a hundred years later, not quite a hundred years later, Oregon encountered this book. Oregon is a Christian author, Christian philosopher again, just like Justin was a philosopher, trained in Greek philosophy and converted to Christianity. Oregon, likewise, heavily trained in Greek philosophy. And Oregon wrote an entire refutation. And that's how we possess what Celsus said. Because he extensively quotes Celsus and then refutes it. One of the main critiques that Celsus mounted against Christianity in this book he wrote, that Oregon then counters against, is how stupid the Satan thing is. Celsus, the critic of Christianity, one of the main things he noticed was how stupid the whole idea of Satan was. It sort of undoes God, is how he put it. It sort of makes God impotent. If you have a religion that has a good God and then an opposing devil, it sort of undoes God's power, his main critique. Remember that Celsus is probably trained in Greek philosophy and probably in Platonic philosophy, where there's one good and perfect being, the perfect good. And so to mire that with the existence of an opposing force sort of undoes everything in his view, and it's pretty stupid in his view. So this is what he says when he talks about that. And in response, Oregon is going to pull together some of the stories of Satan that we're familiar with and put them together in a new way to counterattack this external attack on Christianity. We're in the middle of uh, the book Against Celsus, is the name of Oregon's book, right? Against Celsus. And, and he's now going to say something and then quote from Celsus. Celsus has been criticizing a variety of things, and then he says this. After these remarks, Oregon says, Celsus brings the following objections against us from another angle. He's now quoting from the book Celsus wrote. Celsus says this that these Christians make some quite blasphemous errors and is also shown by this example of their utter ignorance, which was similarly led them to depart from the true meaning of the divine enigmas. When they make a being opposed to God, 
devil, and in the Hebrew tongue, satanas, are the names which they give to this same being. At all events, these notions are entirely of mortal origin. And it is blasphemy to say that when the greatest God indeed wishes to confer some benefits upon men, he has a power which is opposed to him, and so is unable to do it. The Son of God, then, is worsted by the devil, and is punished by him, so that he may teach us also to despise the punishments which he inflicts on us. So he's picking it apart from a philosophical viewpoint. He then goes on to say this, This is blatantly the utterance of a man, the idea of Satan, is blatantly the utterance of a man who is a sorcerer, a magician, who is out for profit and is taking precautions against possible rivals to his opinions and to his begging. Interesting. Kels is here criticizing Christianity from outside, so it's external relations. But what's interesting is he's saying, whoever made it up, Jesus, he's saying, actually probably made it up to argue with people that he's opponents with. Well, you know, I'm not saying that Kelsus is totally right, but they definitely do that, right? The next point we're going to get to, the internal battles. Your opponents. You make up a Satan so that you can say your opponents are on the side of Satan. And so Kelsus sees that and criticizes Christianity from that viewpoint. Look at this next thing, very interesting. Kelsus is educated in some of the things you guys have been educated enough to recognize the combat myth when he sees it. So Oregon now goes on to quoting another passage. Oregon says, then after this, he wants to give an account of the enigmas, this, this, the sort of secret things, which he thinks we have misunderstood when we teach the doctrine about Satan, saying, and now he's quoting Kelsus. Kelsus says this, the ancients hint at a sort of divine war. It doesn't say combat myth, but you couldn't get much closer. Combat myth is the scholarly term for it, right? The ancients hint at a sort of divine war. For Heraclitus speaks as follows, citing a Greek philosopher from way back. But one must know that war is a mutual thing and justice is strife and that everything comes into being through strife and necessity. And Pherecides, who is far earlier than Her Heraclitus, relates a myth of an army drawn up in battle against another army and says that Kronos, the god Kronos, leader of the one, and Ophionus, the big serpent, of the other, he tells of their challenges and their contests and that they made agreements that whichever of them fell into some place should be the vanquished party and a battle goes between gods. He's talking about Greek examples of the combat myth that you guys are familiar with that existed far more earlier than the Greeks ever came up with it. It was part of Mesopotamian culture and Canaanite culture long before the Greeks started to develop similar mythologies in their myths. He then gives several other examples of combat myth. Gods battling with gods. He's actually attributing the notion of Satan to that. He's sort of on track there, isn't he? He sort of has detected something that's true about the history of Satan there in a way. These mythologies, uh, the Satan mythologies, made up so that a sorcerer, a magician like Jesus, can counter his opponents. He comes back to that again. He then critiques the, uh, Kelsus critiques the moral basis of all of this. And the, the setup it makes that sort of blame it on Satan sort of mentality that might arise from this idea of an opposing force to God. That if you make a mistake, it's Satan's fault. Critiques that morally. Then we come to Oregon's overall response. Oregon's overall response is this. I notice, Kelsus, that you're citing ancient sources to show the long heritage 
and the existence of these mythologies that you're talking about, uh, that you're saying dismisses Satan. Well, let me tell you, our mythologies, our stories, actually go back earlier than your stories. And our stories already include the story of Satan before ever Heraclitus that you cited even thought up anything. Our heritage is older than your heritage. This is a common rhetorical weapon in arguing in the ancient world generally, not just Christians against pagans, but everyone uses this. Unlike the modern world where you need a new cell phone every day and the newest is the best, in the ancient world, the oldest is the best. To us, something that's new is more likely to be better than something that's old. To them, something that's old is more likely to be legitimate and better than something that's new. So the argument over who is right often involves, among intellectuals even, who can show that their ideas existed before someone else's ideas. Who can show the longest heritage going back as far as you can imagine. So that's what Oregon does. Oregon argues that the stories of Satan predate the stories that Celsus is citing as showing that we're derivative from him. So it's similar to that uh, derivative argument that we had with uh, Justin Martyr in some ways, right? Um, who's derivative from who? And then he pulls together a lot of the things we've been seeing, beginning to pull together, but he pulls them more together than what we've seen in some ways. Consider whether he, he accuses us of making quite blasphemous errors and of having been led to depart from the true meaning of the divine enigmas, secrets, does not obviously make a mistake himself. Celsus makes a mistake, he says, a major one, since he has failed to comprehend the fact that it is the writings of Moses, which are not only far older than Heraclitus and Pherakides, but even earlier than Homer. What's he saying? The writings of Moses are older than the earliest thing you guys have. There were even Greeks and Romans who acknowledged the antiquity of Judean writings to the point where sometimes Greeks and Romans might say that they're older than, than their own writings. So he's not the first one to come up with this idea. So they're even older than Homer. They, we have the earliest stories, and they already have Satan in them, is what he's arguing. So he goes on, some such doctrine is hinted at in the story of the serpent. He's aware of and has taken on the idea that Satan was in the story of the serpent in the garden, which was the origin of the Greek myth of a big snake fighting against another god, is the serpent in the Garden of Eden. The serpent, which is the origin of that Greek myth, was the cause of man's expulsion from the divine paradise and deceived the female race with a promise of divine power and of attaining to greater things. And we are told that the man followed her also. See, he knows about the expansion, the life of Adam and Eve expansion uh, that puts Satan in the garden. And who else could be the destroyer in Exodus? He sees the angel destroyer that God sends out to destroy the firstborn to get the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And he says, that was Satan too. Jubilees did a similar thing. Remember that writing Jubilees I mentioned to you? Where a whole lot of angels in the Hebrew Bible suddenly become Satan in the way they interpret it? Further, the averter in Leviticus, which the Hebrew text calls Azazel, I didn't mention this to you yet, but in the Hebrew Bible, when there's the story of the goats and sending out one goat out into the desert in Leviticus to bring the sins of the Israelites away from the people, that goat is called in, in the Hebrew text Azazel. 
which also is the name of one of those angels in the first Enoch, uh, expansion of the story of the fallen angels, right? Anyhow, so in Leviticus, Satan is there too for Oregon. So Oregon knows the story of first Enoch, story of Azazel as a fallen angel, and links it up with Azazel, the goat, that takes away the sins of the Israelites in the Leviticus passage. The goat upon which the lot fell had to be sent forth in the desert, etc. He goes to Job and he says Satan's there too. From your reading of Beale, you already know that Satan in the full-blown evil sense is not there. But for Oregon it is, and for other Christians it already is. These things are coming together. Look what he comes to next. There's a whole lot here I'm not going to read, but let's go on to another one. I have not yet mentioned also the examples from Ezekiel, where he speaks, as it were, of Pharaoh, or of Nebuchadnezzar, or of the prince of Tyre, or the passage from Isaiah, where the dirge is sung for the king of Babylon. Those are the exact passages you read, a couple of them. The passages in the Hebrew Bible and the prophets, where a king is characterized as claiming to be God, and where God proclaims in the prophecy that he will fall. Those have already been linked, we've seen earlier, with the story of Satan, and here explicitly so. Oregon knows that it refers to kings, right? But he says, he's implying that it also involves Satan. From these scriptures, one would learn not a little about evil, of the character of its origin and beginning, and how the evil came to exist because of some who lost their wings. That's a platonic idea and followed the example of the first being who lost his wings. So he's combining the idea of fallen angels there with the platonic idea of the soul having wings and not potentially not being able to fly back to uh, join where it came from, right? This is a platonic idea. He goes on more than that, but you get the idea now. So a response to an external attack influences how Oregon tells the story of Satan and the way he pulls together the story of Satan to try and show it's older than the myths that Kelsus is citing.